read from Daniel chapter 7 this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up on the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different than all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the ten horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. Thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, and the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions that, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. This passage, along with the book of Revelation, is one of those really intriguing, difficult passages. But the idea of this passage is so simple. This passage is all about power. Power from a worldly sense and power from a heavenly sense. And it portrays a king who will wield power the way that it was meant to be stewarded. So I'm going to show you that this morning, but, but first we need to talk a little bit about earthly power. So many of you will be familiar with the Stanford Prison Experiment. You guys heard about this? This is a very famous psychological experiment. Here's the premise. We're going to get a bunch of college kids, 
and uh, a, a researcher, and we're going to take his research assistant, we're going to put them in the basement of a college office building, and we're going to pretend like it's a prison with guards for two weeks and see what happens. What could go wrong? These guys are making $8 a day to be a part of this experiment. Let's just see what happens. And if you've followed this, there's actually a great documentary on what happened when they did this. If you followed this, it, it goes even worse than you thought it could possibly go. They divide up, they, they book these guys in as prisoners, they appoint two guys as guards, and before the end of the first day, the guards, with their uniforms and batons and everything, are harassing these prisoners, and they're yelling at them, and they're imposing stricter rules than were given, and all this is on camera. And it gets so bad and so abusive. These, these guards take their role so seriously, they almost transform into something else. Is this, is this good? So this fellow researcher uh, had heard about the experiment, comes on day five. Now, this is supposed to be two weeks comes on day five, and the conditions are so terrible for the prisoners, and the abuse of the guards is so bad, they stop the experiment on day six and send everybody home. And in the aftermath of the report, what they figure out is power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That old maxim about power. You take people who previously were on the exact same level, and you just elevate two of them, even if it's kind of pretend, and it goes to their head in such a way that everything within six days goes to shambles. Now, I, I would argue, there's a lot of good takeaways from this experiment, but, but I would argue that this is like the history of the universe in miniature. I mean, if you open the first pages of the Bible, it does not take very long for people who previously were all in a nice order together under God serving him to elevate themselves and suppress other people, kill other people, have dominion over other people, and be immediately corrupted by power. The more you read history, the more you find out this is actually what happens in every kingdom where people are elevated over others. There's something about us that it is so seductive to be in charge of other people and to be looked up to by other people and to have power over other people. The historical record would say almost no one can handle it. So the, the Bible's story follows the exact same arc as these Stanford prison experiments. You have people who are supposed to be living together in brotherhood and fellowship before the Lord who have systematically oppressed and abused and committed injustices against each other. And the story that God is telling in history is a redemption of human power through a human who came into history and stewarded power the way it was always made to be stewarded. And to tell this story this morning, I want to I look at the life of Daniel, who was one of our characters in this series that is awaiting a true king. And the thing is, if you're going to talk about a king at Christmas, we, we talk about a king, uh, and because it's Jesus, we kind of give him a pass from all the other things that kings have done throughout history. But if you're going to talk about a king, you have to talk about the exercise of power. You have to talk about the way that he treats his subjects. And in the life of Daniel, here's what I want you to see this morning. The faithful presence of Daniel, the revelation of the eternal king, and the fruit 
of Jesus' kingdom. That's what I want you to see this morning. The faithful presence of Daniel, the revelation of the eternal king, and the fruit of Jesus' kingdom. So let's start with Daniel. This is one of those where we were all exposed to Daniel at some point as a kid with kind of a VBS version of the Daniel story. And in those stories, Daniel is this really faithful guy. He gets thrown into a lion's den, but he continues to trust God, and they pull him out of there, and everything goes back to normal, and it's just great and wonderful, and everybody lives happily ever after. But then as an adult, you, you, you read back through Daniel, and you realize this is actually a really complicated, fascinating, real-life kind of story. Daniel was born in Jerusalem. And Daniel is connected in some way, we don't know exactly how, but he's connected some way with the ruling class in Jerusalem. He's maybe, his dad's maybe like the third son of a duke or something like that. And so he's in the royal caste of Jerusalem. His family is powerful, influential, they are wealthy, they are tied into society, but Jerusalem, the kingdom of of Judah, is at an all-time low in their power. What makes that worse is right next to them is an empire that is growing to be one of the most dominant empires in the history of the world called Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, comes and demands that Judah pay tribute to Babylon. Judah refuses. They break a deal that they've made. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends his men to Jerusalem to take captive the influential kids from the ruling caste of Jerusalem. See, the, the Babylonians were actually kind of, they are kind of ingenious in the way they made sure that the people they conquered didn't rise up to overthrow them. Because what they would do is when they conquered a people, they would take the kids of the most influential people in the nation or in the city, they would bring them to Babylon, and they would put them in kind of the accelerated program in the palace. They would teach them about the literature, they would give them great food, they would give them great positions, they would give them influence, they would assimilate them into Babylon. So now it's kind of a double thing. On the one hand, you don't have an incentive to rise up if you're a powerful person because they have your kids captive. But on the flip side, your kids, after a while, are so assimilated and in and part of the empire that you feel the pressure to assimilate yourself because it's no longer Babylon It's all your kids and their friends who are now in these high positions. So what they did was they took Babylon, they took Daniel, and they brought him to Babylon. And his three friends, Rakshak and Benny, who came with him, they all come to Babylon. And in chapter 1, we see that they are being brought into the king's court. They're, They're not being mistreated. They're actually being taken care of to a high, high degree. And what happens with Daniel is, His life is a story of what it looks like to be a faithful presence in a foreign land, right? There's a whole section of the Bible that I think is becoming more and more and more uh, relevant for us because it's the story of how people who are no longer in the majority, no longer in their homeland, no longer in a place of power, they behave as faithful witnesses to see the work of God continue in other lands. This would be stories like the story of Daniel, who was taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. This is a story of Esther, who grows up as an exile and then enters into the the court of Persia. This would be people like Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer for the king in exile, but then comes back home to Jerusalem. This would be like the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, who don't see the kingdom of Judah flourishing, but have a vision 
of what God is going to do with the remnant of his people in the long run. So Daniel and his friends decide, and his parents taught him this, that they're going to serve the one true God no matter what happens. And if you look at chapter 1, what happens is he, they bring him into the court and they offer him the best food in the empire. But it's been sacrificed to idols. And Jews are not supposed to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel and his friends have a decision to make. Will they compromise or will they be faithful? They decide to be faithful. They say to the king, to the, to the king's, uh, the person in charge of their group, we will only eat vegetables. And then you test and see if we're healthy at the end of this time. And you remember how this story goes. They're not just the healthiest. They're the smartest. They're the strongest. They're the best performing of all the kids from the conquered territories because they were faithful to their God. In chapter 2, Daniel is called upon to give a word to King Nebuchadnezzar about a dream. And Daniel has an opportunity here. He has the ability to tell the king what he wants to hear, or he has the opportunity to tell the king, your kingdom is temporary and will actually be conquered by someone else. So the question for Daniel is, do you speak truth to power, or do you go along with everybody else and curry favor in a foreign land? In chapter 3, maybe the most famous story in the book of Daniel, Daniel's three friends are pressured when Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant statue to himself. I mean, this is a huge, almost like the Statue of Liberty of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he commands that everybody bow down and worship it. And Daniel's three friends have to make a decision, and you remember how this goes. They tell the king, we're not going to bow down to your statue. The king says, well, then you're going to go in the fiery furnace. And Daniel and his three friends, they say, you can do that if you want to, and we have no obligation to explain why we're not going to bow down. But if you throw us in there, our God is capable of rescuing us. But, and then in one of the great lines of the Bible, they say, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and serve your idol. This is tremendous faith from these people. But, but I want to point out another aspect of this. Daniel and his three friends were always willing to serve God in whatever circumstance they found themselves. Never once in the book of Daniel do you find them compromising, saying things like, well, if we'll just bow down to the idol, then we'll have more power and influence so we could do something for God. They never say that. They never reason that way. They always reason like, if we will just do what God says and take the consequences, then God will bring about the ends that he wants for our lives. But on the flip side, here's what's also interesting. These guys are not anti-influence. You never see Daniel say, you know what, Babylon's a pretty bad place. I can't be a member of the civil service because I don't stand for what's going on in the empire. He is a senior advisor to the king, actually to multiple kings and emperors. So on the one hand, you have this fascinating blend. He is not compromising in worshiping the God of Israel. He's not compromising in what God has commanded but he's not opposed to taking the opportunities that God provides for him to have influence in a foreign land. The faithful presence of Daniel actually pays off in the end because if you follow the timeline of Daniel's life, he gets taken in the first exile. He's a child. He gets uh, taken to the court of Babylon. Babylon gets conquered. He gets to be a part of the Persian Empire for a while, and then they get conquered, and finally he's in the court of Cyrus, the Mede. And Right at the end of Daniel's life, 
Cyrus does something amazing. He issues an edict that all the conquered peoples can go back to their homeland. In fact, if you follow the timeline of Daniel's life, this must have been in the waning years of his life. He sees a king, maybe through his own influence, who allows people to go back and worship their God. So Daniel's life spans the whole exile of brought into the court of Babylon, returning home to Jerusalem. And for us, we we have to ask the question, what is it about Daniel's faithful presence in a foreign land that teaches us how to live now? What is it about Daniel's uncompromising faith, but ability to trust God with the results that we could emulate in our world today? Well, the second thing you need to see about Daniel is he starts to have these visions. So in, in chapter 7, there's kind of a clean break in the book between the stories about Daniel, which are taught at VBS, and the visions that Daniel has, which are never taught at VBS. Chapter 7 through the end of the book are never taught at VBS. I would love to see this on a felt board. Um, these, these animals that are arising, the kids would love this. we got a bear with a half rack of ribs in his mouth and wings being plucked off. This would be phenomenal. We may do this at camp out this year. We may do the second half of Daniel at camp out this year. But the visions in the second part of Daniel give you the motive for how Daniel behaves in the first half of Daniel. You, you wouldn't be able to do what Daniel did in the first half of Daniel if you didn't believe what Daniel believed in the second half of Daniel. See, his confidence in the Lord comes in the second half. We find out why he has all this confidence in what God is going to do in chapters 7 through 12. And in chapter 7, which is kind of the marquee vision for the rest of the book, he has a vision of the throne room of heaven standing over the kingdoms of the earth. In the first part of this vision, he sees these animals, these four great beasts. And I want you to think back as I read this to the way these beasts are described. They are carnal, they are powerful, they are vicious, they are physical, they're predatory. That is the way the kingdoms of the earth function, through raw power and violence and oppression. And if there's anybody in the world that knew this, it would be Daniel. He saw the conquering of almost the entire known world twice in his lifetime. And if you trace out the arc of history through these beasts, he's basically predicting everything that's going to happen from the 6th century all the way up to the 2nd century B.C. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and his king falling, and Darius and his king falling, and Cyrus and his kingdom falling, and Alexander the Great and his kingdom falling, and finally the kingdom of Rome arising. But one thing that distinguishes Christianity from every secular version of history is that Christians actually have a unique theory about what is guiding history, right? We've heard the quote, this is a Martin Luther King Jr. quote recently quoted by President Obama, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. You know this quote, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Daniel would have said, says who? Says who? Who's guaranteeing that the arc of the universe is going towards justice? Who who is it that is over the kingdoms of the world that can guarantee that we're moving in a better direction? Well, as Martin Luther King Jr. would have argued, God. 
is the one who sits enthroned over history. See, Christians believe that no matter how the universe is going, somehow, some way, God is guiding the scope of history towards his ends in the world. That we actually can have confidence that no matter who comes to power or what great kingdom was the greatest thing ever and then falls, no matter what person rises to power, God is the one who's actually guiding the course of history. And this vision presents this theory better than anywhere in the Bible. In fact, there is no other place in the Bible where we see this scene until we get to the New Testament. That the clouds of heaven break open, and the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne, and he is ruling over all these beasts of the earth. But his kingdom is different. His kingdom is one where a person who looks like a son of man comes to the throne, No longer an animal, no longer a vicious beast, but somebody like a son of man comes to the throne and the Ancient of Days hands his kingdom over willingly to another person. And this son of man, it says, he is presented the kingdom and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. And his dominion will be everlasting. It will never pass away. And his kingdom will be one that shall not be destroyed. You can see the contrast here between the other kingdoms. It's different in every conceivable way. He is given glory that all peoples will serve him and worship him. His dominion is everlasting, not rising and falling with the tides of earthly empires. And his kingdom will never, ever be destroyed. But I want to point out something really significant to you. The kingdom of God that we see in this passage has a very specific purpose. In fact, we can identify the arc of the universe and where it is bending towards all peoples, nations, and languages worshiping the Son of Man. That's the goal of God's kingdom. In fact, at any time in history, you can be confident that this is the goal that God is working all of history towards in the world, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come and worship the true king. That's God's plan for the universe. And in this scene, you see the revelation of the eternal king, the son of man who will come and take the kingdom from the ancient of days. So for about 500 years, people were waiting for this kind of king. And in fact, the kings of the earth get worse as you go from Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pretty bad king, all the way up to Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a horrible, horrible king in the second century to King Herod, who is a terrible king, to many worse kings in between. But the people of Israel were praying and waiting. Someday God will bring about what he has promised. Someday he will reveal the one true eternal king. So I want to fast forward from Daniel about 500 years, and I want to go back to Babylon. In Babylon, in the first century, there were a group of people like Daniel, who were advisors to the king. These people have kind of a clouded history. Uh, They were astrologers. They worshiped the stars. They were magicians. They were fortune tellers. But they were also wise counselors. They were a group of people who had made their way into every powerful kingdom since the time of Daniel. In fact, We don't think about it this way, but you could almost call Daniel one of these, a magi. And this group of magi in the court of Babylon noticed one day that something like 
a star that hadn't been there before was shining in the area of Judea. So these, these wise men, these magi, these kingmakers who would crown the kings of Babylon, they decided that they were going to pack their bags and take a caravan into a land far in the west of where they were to discover this new king who had been born. Think, think like Merlin or Gandalf or somebody like that, traveling along in this caravan. And I've said this before, but I, I just have to remind you, this, the song We Three Kings is a great song, other than the fact that there were not three of them and they were not kings. Otherwise, great song. But these are not kings. These are people who would crown the king. These are people who would advise the king. These are what we would call king makers in, in the smoky back rooms that are pulling the strings. These are the people who have the real power. These are actually people who have access to a spiritual world that the common man doesn't. And so these, these guys in this group, in, in what was a pretty treasonous act, leave the court of one king in the promise of following another king. And as they follow the star, they get closer and closer, and they realize that it's somewhere near Jerusalem, but it's, but it's actually not in Jerusalem. But they decide to make a stop in Jerusalem anyway, and they go to the palace of King Herod. And King Herod receives these magi in what would have been the greatest state visit that ever happened in Jerusalem. And these guys say, where is the king of the Jews? See, this is, this is kind of awkward, because... On King Herod's business card, it says, King of the Jews. So the fact that they're asking for a king of the Jews means there's a new king supplanting not just King Herod, but all the old kings of the earth. There is a new king who's going to be different and who has announced his coming to the wise men of the world. And of course, you know the story. King Herod gets really self-conscious he decides that he's going to tell them that he wants to go worship the king, but actually he's going to kill all the babies so he can get rid of this king. King Herod is the picture of every earthly kingdom and how they respond to threats. But in the meantime, the Magi, they take the four-mile trip over to Bethlehem, and they come to an unremarkable cave in the ground, and they find a little baby who's laying in a feed trough. And as they pull the caravan up, and they see Jesus, which there's all kinds of arguments, is he too at this point, it's some, it's sometime after he's born, Mary and Joseph are with the baby, and they come in and they open up their treasures, and they bow down and they worship Jesus. This is the story of all of humanity coming full circle, that from the beginning of time, the kingdoms of the earth have oppressed people and pushed people down, and they have committed injustice. And in this moment, humanity is coming back before the throne and falling down and worshiping the true king who instead of doing any of those things will lay his life down for his people. See, there's a radical change in power that happens when Jesus is born. The way that Jesus wields power is to die for his enemies, to give up his life for other people. The difference between the way that Jesus wields power and the way the world wields power is the way that we tend to wield power in the world is so that we can enrich ourselves. But Paul says that the way that Jesus wields power is that he became poor so that we could become rich. He emptied himself and made himself nothing so that we could become the children of God. 
He became broken so we could be whole. He was pierced and killed so that we could come alive again. This new king of the universe will reign eternally in a kingdom that is no longer corrupted by power, that is no longer subject to the whims of the kingdoms of the world. He has come to bring in a kingdom to restore you and me to the relationship with God we always were made to have. So the Magi are the first people in the Gospels who get it. They come and bow down and worship the king. They saw him for who he was, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the presence of the living God. They bring three interesting gifts to Jesus, and I'll conclude with this. They bring three interesting gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Or if you're in Borough Bible this week, gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. The gold is an obvious choice. This is what you would bring to any king, the most valuable thing that you have. Frankincense is a spice, but it can be used like incense in the temple. It has a spiritual component that you would bring this as a part of your worship. But the last thing they brought captures this whole transition that I've been pointing to in the story of Daniel. Myrrh is what you put on people to prepare them for burial. This would be a slap in the face to a king. Because as Daniel shows in chapter 7 when he interprets the vision for Nebuchadnezzar, he says, every human kingdom is doomed to die. Every human king will pass. Every empire will go away. But these guys bring myrrh for a kingdom that is eternal. Because this king, through his death, will secure a kingdom that will last forever. And the, the takeaway for us is, we do not serve a king who wields earthly power. We serve a king who wields the kind of power that you can only embrace through his death for you and your death to yourself on his behalf. As we celebrate Christmas and we're talking about awaiting the king, this one maybe is the most unique quality of the king in that he died for us so we could live with him. There's never been a king who's done that before. There will never be a king who does that, and there will be no need because there is one eternal king who reigns forever, and his kingdom will last through all eternity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we, when we step back and we look at history, we realize that you are in control of history. You are guiding it towards your purpose, that all people, every nation, tribe, and tongue, people from across the corners of the earth will come to worship you. And Father, these magi show us that that process has begun. The people are coming, and they're worshiping you. They're back in relationship with the true king. So, Father, this morning, we offer our hearts to you in allegiance and in service. We, like the Magi, Lord, we bow down and we worship you. We give you everything we have, the most valuable things that we could bring in submission and obedience to your reign. Father, we thank you for the loving sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he will reign on your throne forever. We trust him in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we celebrate communion together. And as we've talked about many times, communion is a feast of a king. In the book of Revelation, where this story from Daniel is picked back up, you see that the throne is shown again and the books are open and the, and the dead are judged based on what they have done. And only those whose names are written in the book of life go on to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ. And there's an interesting phrase in there that it says that the, the people conquer 
through the blood of the lamb and through the word of their testimony. And this morning, what we're doing is we're celebrating that the blood of the lamb covers us and that our testimony is we have died to our sins and we are living again with Christ. So as you come this morning and you tear off a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup, we are proclaiming the feast of the king who will reign eternally. So stand as we continue to worship and come to the table of Jesus Christ.